Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. So this week is the 101st anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment when some women, aka white women, won the right to vote. So it's only appropriate that our guest this week is Erin Haynes, who is the editor-at-large at the 19th a nonprofit newsroom focusing on the intersection of gender, politics, and policy, and named after the 19th Amendment. Yes, they do great work. And I think what's so important about the work that the 19th does and why we wanted to have Erin on the show is that she and her team are actively working toward a type of coverage that fully centers women in marginalized groups in their entirety, mm-hmm. like acknowledging that the passage of the 19th Amendment left behind a whole swath of women and has had ripple effects to this day where voting access is still a fight, particularly for Black women. Yeah, exactly. And I think while other news organizations silo that coverage into like the women's section or they exactly. have a separate race section, the 19th is actually showing how those stories are everyone's stories and should be informing priorities like in our politics and culture, which I do think we started to see in the pandemic. But I fear if we keep this coverage siloed that the momentum will wear <laughs> off. Absolutely. Which is why I want to ask Erin what she thinks the media needs to be doing right now to continue to keep women and people of color central to the stories we tell. What difference that approach has made so far in creating policies, if any, and how we ensure that coverage of women's lives also considers the intersection of race, class, and status. It's a lot, so let's get to it. Erin Haynes, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thanks, Jen. So happy to be here. Super happy to have you. What I want to weave throughout our conversation is that sort of concurrent with the pandemic, there's been a phenomenon that stories of women and marginalized people have broken through in a way that they have not done in our history before. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, it's revealed so much of what's still broken in the country that we live in. And you've been a big part of this work, both as an AP reporter that reported on race and as a founding reporter, editor for the 19th. I do feel like we're at this point now where we could, as so often happens when you make gains on behalf of the marginalized, where things start to sort of fall back. So that's kind of what I want to push through. But tell me about, this is the anniversary of the 19th. Yeah, we just hit our one year anniversary. It's named for the 19th Amendment, in which some women, white women, won the right to vote. Right. But you were the co-founder who came up with the idea of putting an asterisk behind the teeth. (laughs) Absolutely. So explain that. Thank you for asking me about this, Jim, because I do love talking about the asterisk. So, (laughs) I mean, for people who have not seen our logo, it's the number one nine, but then there's also an asterisk on the end of it. When we were conceiving uh, this newsroom and kind of conceiving the name of it and, and, and the mission and the vision for it, you know, the 19th Amendment was something that was, you know, very powerful symbol for a lot of us. But at the same time, you know, as a Black woman, who knows the history of this amendment, I certainly understood naming this newsroom that, especially with what we wanted to do in terms of changing the conversation, not just around gender, but also around race and politics, was that we had to talk about uh, the truth. And you formed it last year. Heading into the centennial of suffrage, but also coinciding with this national reckoning around race, right? Yeah. And really around institutions and systemic inequality, right? So like all of that just made 
the asterisk that much more powerful to me. But yeah, I mean, the asterisk is recognition of the omission of the Black women who frankly were thrown under the bus by the white women who were fighting for the right to vote. But there were Black suffragists that stood shoulder to shoulder with them who were sacrificed in 1920. The movements were very much aligned to the 19th century. Absolutely. And then there was a number of times where it was pitted against each other. Absolutely. That dynamic, right, has has persisted, like it persisted through the 20th century. And even you've still got Black women on the front lines, you know, fighting for their very fragile access to the franchise, even as we speak. Right. Many white women, you know, once they got their access to the franchise, they abandoned that fight. You know, they yep. no longer saw the need to continue to be suffragists because they got what they wanted. It was another 45 years before the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed and Black women won the right to vote. Right. But they've been fighting to maintain that access ever since while you have white women who largely don't have those same obstacles to the ballot box. And so they don't necessarily see this as their fight anymore. And I think you have women of color who are back on the front lines or some of whom never left the front lines who are saying, hello, like we need you in a way that you weren't there for us 100 years ago. Please show up for us now because this is something that if it affects any women, it should affect all women and and everybody should care about this issue. Yeah. And sometimes, and I, you know, what I found like the history of white women when it comes to universal suffrage and when it comes yes. to civil rights for mm-hmm. people of color, they are protective of their perch even when it doesn't offer them the sort of privileges that a white man has in the country. Absolutely. You know, that's sort of the dawning, I think, that happened to a lot of white folks in the last year was realizing, Absolutely. oh, I am part of perpetuating this system if yeah, I am yes. not actively pushing against it. And I think a lot of white women, frankly, you know, last year saw themselves being harmed by that system, you know, especially yeah. in the pandemic, you know, seeing mm-hmm. the workplace disparities, seeing you know, the economic disparity, seeing that they actually were vulnerable and fragile in in a lot of those ways and recognizing, you know, that a lot of these systems that they thought maybe could protect them, they could also be harmed by them too, right? So yes, you would hope that, you know, we're kind of all in this together, but the idea that there's an understanding that they are also impacted by this and so that they should also literally have skin in the game, that was kind of the beginning of something where you are starting to see some solidarity around more issues than traditionally we have seen. And that is what kind of made last summer feel like maybe the start of a tipping point. But I will tell you, and I've said this before, like one of the hardest adjustments for me coming to the 19th, you know, as a Black woman, like I wrote about race, thought about race as a person, as a journalist for pretty much my whole life, my whole career. It wasn't until I came here that I really had the freedom, honestly, to think about what it means to be a woman in this country like how that is political, the ways in which that shows up in our politics and our decisions uh, around politics. And what I realized is, well, gee, well, yeah, this is why people associate feminism with white women. Because if you don't have to think about your race as something that holds you back. You think about the other thing that holds you back. Which is your gender. Right. And I really didn't realize that. But even now, I mean, even thinking about being a woman, like that intersection of race and gender is still very much present for me. And that is the lens through which I see so much of the work that I do is through that lens. Okay, so you talk about telling issues through the lens of gender, right? And so, and I know that your 19th motto that all issues of women's issues, and that's important because mm-hmm. as you like sort of alluded to before, some brands of feminism only focus on issues that affect white women because, you know, the obstacle in our way has been our gender, not our gender right. and race. You know, so it's like gender wage gap, reproductive rights. You forget some of the most pressing issue that women face are evictions, right? Yes. Voter restrictions, poor healthcare. Exactly. So, 
Give some examples of, of like what it does mean to look at these issues through the lens of gender. One, one example I know is the portraits of a pandemic that you all did. Tell us about that, what it, what it taught you about the most important issues women are facing at this moment. Thank you for bringing that up, Jim, because Portraits of a Pandemic was really rewarding work for me personally last year because, you know, we launched a week before the Iowa caucuses. So I'm in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Then the campaign trail vanishes, right, because the pandemic happens. We're all on lockdown. I'm in Philadelphia in my apartment. And like most political reporters, we're sitting there wondering, well, what the hell are we supposed to do now? Like Joe Biden's in the basement. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. (laughs) It took a minute to figure out what we were all going to do. Yeah, it did. But for me, you know, what we realized as a newsroom was women were absolutely at the center of this pandemic, that the Mm -hmm. pandemic was political and that we Mm -hmm. needed to focus on how this thing was impacting women. That was our political journalism at that point. Right. And so Philadelphia has had the distinction uh, for a while of being one of the poorest big cities in America. And I thought, well, what if we could tell stories one woman at a time, one issue Mm -hmm. at a time in the poorest big city in America about the inequality that was already existing before the pandemic, but that was absolutely being exacerbated by the pandemic. And so that's what I did. So let's talk to the woman who is worried about how she's going to make the rent because she's out of work. Or let's talk to the teacher who is scared to death of what's happening with her students who she's lost touch with in the pandemic because Mm -hmm. there is a digital divide in Philadelphia and even getting them Wi-Fi is is meaningless that they don't even have the laptop to connect to the Wi-Fi, right? Right. Let's talk to the small business owner woman who is not only trying to keep her business afloat, but is also trying to keep employees. I mean, I thought, you know, maybe I could write a few of these. No, I ended up writing like more than a dozen as the pandemic Mm -hmm. went on and on and on and on. But it really helped me because, you know, eventually the campaign trail does come back into focus and you understand that this is an issue that women are taking to the ballot box. Right. Right. I mean, they're experiencing their own lives, which are often sort of thought of as, you know, just like dry issues like Mm -hmm. paid leave. (laughs) Right. You know, family medical leave. Yes. um, Child care. Navigating their parents in a nursing home or getting help for them. Elder care is such a big deal. Yeah. Nutrition. I mean, just so many issues that people were taking for granted or even just, you know, obviously you and I have the privilege of of working from home. But so many of those essential workers who we know were Mm -hmm. women who didn't have that option. Yeah, we were wanting to center them in our coverage. So a year later, do you feel like a lot of those issues have fallen by the wayside? We're talking a lot about infrastructure. We're talking a lot about Afghanistan. right? No less urgent for the women in this country. And for the marginalized people in this country who have been enduring this, you know, for the past year and a half, if not before. Right. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our governing, yes, you see these infrastructure bills moving through Congress, things like caregiving, things like the minimum wage increase are things that are falling by the wayside as these negotiations go on. Well, maybe we don't need this right now. Maybe this isn't a must have. Well, it is a must have for a lot of the women who frankly voted for this administration and who voted for people who told them they were going to push for these things, you know, once they got elected. And so I think that is why you are continuing to see activists and the folks that they mobilize continue to call for action on this because they know that we are at a moment, you know, where, you know, people are aware of this now. And so let's turn that awareness into action so that women and and marginalized folks are getting to a new normal, just as the rest of the country is getting to a new normal around all these other issues that we learned from the pandemic. 
women just had devastating historic losses. Hundreds of thousands dropping out of the workforce because of care issues. Yes. What are you finding is happening now to those women or what is it that you think that we do now? Women are certainly recovering some of those jobs and some workplaces are becoming aware that they have to be a part of the solution, right? It's not just on parents to figure it out anymore in the way that it used to be, right? It's like, oh, wait, like if we don't actually help you, you can't come back to work and we need workers. And we need workers. So we should probably be a part of the solution, right? Yeah. That is happening in some workplaces. And you do see the administration Mm -hmm. even engaging with CEOs to encourage them to be thinking about this especially in Mm -hmm. the absence of, you know, federal action, kind of codifying caregiving for folks. Corporations are going to have to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Men are going to have to be a part of the solution, whether that is the men who are running these businesses, whether that is men who are elected officials who could make a difference if they would, you know, talk about why this is important, not just for women, but for our society, right? Yep. And for the men that, that control a lot of these businesses where women and marginalized folks are going to be working, like how do you remove the obstacles to get folks back to the workplace and so that they can participate in this democracy and this society? Like everybody has to be asked about this. It is not just on women to figure this out. I mean, even when I, you know, hear things like a Marshall Plan for moms, it's like, no, parents, parents <laughs> yes. need to be, need to be yes. the ones that are asked about this. Like what that implies is that the burden is still on women to figure this out and to deal with this. I know, I know. It's catchy. It is catchy. And based on the conversations you have had with women, Erin, what is the one policy that would make the biggest difference? The child care piece is huge. It is. Yeah. I just think it keeps coming back to that. Yeah. If as a society, we do not figure out caregiving, mm-hmm. if we do not stop just making it the purview and the responsibility of women to figure this mm-hmm. out on their own, we don't move forward as a society and and things will not be better for women in the workplace, especially, but I think just in their lives, generally speaking, things don't improve if that is not addressed going forward. There was something to celebrate last week, which is the Vice President Harris convened a group of business leaders to discuss childcare. I saw that. That has been a big part of her portfolio. I mean, her lived experience and how that is playing into her leadership and how she is approaching policy. I think that you have seen that show up in uh, her response to the pandemic and also in these conversations around infrastructure. She has brought women to the table and she has brought the caregiving piece to the table. She's not letting that drop off of the conversation. I think that that is hugely important, especially alongside President Biden talking about his own experience as a single parent, his challenges with finding Mm -hmm. caregiving when he was a young senator. I think it does matter. I worry about focus dissipating. Absolutely. After the pandemic, which I'm eagerly awaiting, (laughs) but concerned that... When will we be after the pandemic? I mean, well, I think the pandemic, it's just like another thing that you add to the like knapsack that's constantly on your back of things you have to deal with in her life, but that these stories may become less prominent. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, you know, if you worry about that, you know, you all be focused on it, but other newsrooms may not. Like, is there something that needs to change in the premise of coverage and what's considered news in order to make sure that stories that are centered around gender and race when it comes to issues don't drop off? Yes. The recognition that women are not a special interest group, 
you know, women <laughs> are the majority of the population, the majority of the electorate and the majority of the workforce. But like, we don't talk about women that way, right. which is ridiculous. Right. And so, you know, for our money, all issues are women's issues, right? So we are going to talk to them. And also, you know, marginalized folks we know are becoming, you know, an increasing part of our population and an increasing part of our electorate. It's not that they don't care about these same issues. They are engaged. Nobody's asking them necessarily, you know, about, again, everything, not just the thing that, you know, people may assume is only concerning to their group, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you take Black voters, for instance. Yes, we care about, you know, issues of criminal justice. Yes, we care about voting rights. But Black voters also care about the economy. They also care about education. They also care about the Supreme Court, right? Right. But if you're not asking them that, they're not part of that conversation and their assumptions about, you know, kind of what they prioritize and value. So, that has a big impact because then yeah. the whole conversation around, for example, the Supreme Court might be centered more around yes. white people. Correct. Or that's how you force a question on, you know, oh, by the way, there is no black woman on the Supreme Court. When will that happen? And that's when you right. start asking presidential candidates because you're hearing from black voters when you ask them specifically, what is it that concerns you about the future of the court? That may be a thing. It certainly is a thing that came up when I talked to voters on the campaign trail in 2020. They want to see a black woman on the Supreme Court, for example. Mm -hmm. They were very concerned about what we're seeing now happening uh, with voting rights. But also, you know, they're concerned about what they've been seeing with, you know, affirmative action continuing to kind of come to the courts and what that's going to mean, you know, for the future of of work and and access and inclusion. And then that being under threat. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever issue that we are talking about in the news cycle Women need to be part of that conversation. It is good journalism to do that. Right. It is more accurate journalism to do that. And let me just say one more thing, about, you know, because I guess people assume, you know, because we are a newsroom that's focused on gender politics and policy that we don't hire men or that we won't hire men. Absolutely not true. Yeah. Even that we're not going to talk about men. We are going to talk about men in the same way that we ask women to speak for their gender or we ask people of color to speak for their race. Men also should have to answer for their gender. Take, for example, this pandemic. We know who most of these political leaders are who are not enforcing these mandates or or the ones who are enforcing them. Like, what does it mean to be a man in politics who is leading, who is encouraging people to get Mm -hmm. vaccinated, who is encouraging people to get masks? We should be, you know, reporting on polling to the extent that it shows a gender gap in this pandemic around all kinds of issues. When we're talking about workplace issues, caregiving issues, we have to be asking men, where are you in this conversation? Because if we don't, women are never going to get back into the workforce in the way that gives them a new normal that they knew that they needed even before the pandemic, but they were certainly exacerbated by the pandemic, right? But like, this isn't a newsroom about centering men, but it is about bringing men into a a conversation around gender in a way that I don't think that they really are interrogated on a regular enough basis. All right, it's time to take a quick break. And then I want to ask Erin about the story that I believe put the 19th on the map. That's next on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Erin Haynes, the editor-at-large of the nonprofit newsroom, The 19th. So I think that there was one story that put The 19th on the map, and it started with a call you got from civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump. He told you the name of a woman who's come to be very important in our society. So tell us about that call. Sure. Well, actually, let me back up. When I started my journalism career, Mm -hmm. and I knew that I wanted to write about race, I thought that 
at that time, you know, this is me in my early 20s, I'm thinking I'm going to be writing about the legacy of the civil rights movement, the gains that those folks had kind of fought for, like the fruits of their labor, and also the kind of the last vestiges of racism. Because you thought that was the path that we were on. Yes. I thought that that was where we were as a society. And so I thought I was going to be writing about that. Um, Most of the latter part of my career, I have been writing about the resurgence and the retrenchment of racism Mm -hmm. and about the losses of that progress, which is something that has been very disheartening and very discouraging in a lot of ways as a Black person, as an American, but a very fascinating time uh, for me as a journalist. And, you know, a big part of that has been the Black Lives Matter movement. And so that was kind of how I came to meet Attorney Crump, who I've worked with since the Trayvon Martin case in 2012. Mm -hmm. He represents Jacob Blake's family, right? Jacob Blake's family. He represented Michael Brown's family. I mean, like Benjamin Crump, you know, he is the attorney that shows up, you know, when so many of these tragedies happen. Exactly. Yeah. And so we get to last spring, there's the pandemic raging. You know, so he is not the person that I expect to get a call from. And Mm -hmm. yet here he is calling me and telling me the story of this young woman, 26-year-old Black woman, paramedic. So, you know, first responder in the pandemic who is gunned down in her apartment in the middle of the night. And her name was Brianna Taylor. George Floyd hadn't yet happened, but Ahmaud Arbery, who had happened in my home state of Georgia, had just been killed. And, you know, there were hashtags for him and people Mm -hmm. were very upset about what had happened to him in this pandemic. And yet there was hardly any national coverage about what had happened to this young woman. And this immediately resonated with me. I mean, at at the 19th, I didn't think I was going to be writing about Black Lives Matter very much anymore because most of the people who are killed are Black men, unfortunately. But here you have this Black woman whose case was no less egregious. And yet, you know, why was she getting less attention? Well, I mean, gender is part of that. And you have to be honest about that. And so when he came to me, it was a no-brainer to me that this was a story for the 19th, that we were going to put her story on the national radar, hopefully get her story trending and hopefully let the world know what had happened to her because it was horrific. It was was more than a tragedy. It seemed unjust and it seemed like something that people needed to know about. And so- It was unjust, like it just hit in so many spheres from like being a paramedic. In a pandemic, it should have been this essential worker, right? Right. And her mom was so worried about her, you know, just coming home safely because of the pandemic. And yet, you know, she does that only to be gunned down in her own home because of, you know, disparate policing. Like, I couldn't believe the story, but I also couldn't believe that this was a story that had happened two months earlier and nobody knew about it. Right. I think that it was definitely a story that put us on the map as a newsroom to be right. able to tell that story because it was very much in our wheelhouse. Right. Right. I think, sure, I would have written it for the Associated Press. If, you know, Attorney Crump and I had a relationship, I'm sure he would have called. But I do think it resonated more because we were saying that it mattered and that we were this new newsroom that was really setting priorities and putting a stake in the ground and saying, no, like, this is a thing that we care about. And this is the thing that we think that you should care about, too. Mm -hmm. And did you always want to be a journalist? What was no? The... I was not somebody with oh. you know. I was not one of these born with ink in my veins people that you hear about. My parents weren't journalists yeah. when I was growing up. We didn't watch TV during dinner unless we were watching the news. Mm-hmm. So I was always interested in current events and wanted to pay attention to what was going on in the world. But mm-hmm. no, I mean it wasn't until I got to college and I had to pick a major and it was like where'd well, you go to I'm college? <laughs> I went to Oglethorpe University in Atlanta. Okay, and uh, I'm nosy. 
you know, I, I would say curious, but my mom would, you know, if you ask her, she's going to tell you I'm nosy. <laughs> but I like learning about different things and, and meeting new people all the time. Mm-hmm. And so journalism mm-hmm. seemed like something that I could do that didn't feel like work. So I tried it. There was a small black paper in Atlanta mm-hmm. that needed reporters. And, and I walked in the door one day and said, hey, I, I could use some exposure here. And they were like, can you start today? And I was like, great. Yeah. Uh, and that was really it was the, the Atlanta Daily World was the name of the paper. Does it still exist? It does still exist. Okay. Um, but it was formative for me because it's one of the oldest papers in the black press in this country. And the stories that we told were about the black community in its totality. Right. So not just, you know, stories about black folks in crisis or trauma, but, you know, black people leading black people who had businesses, mm-hmm. families. And also just understanding that those people were worth writing about, that they belonged on the front page of that newspaper, and mm. that, that there were Black people in positions of authority that we needed to hold accountable. And so, like, that experience I carried with me throughout my career. I went on to work at the Orlando Sentinel, at the Los Angeles Times, at the Washington Post. Uh, I did a couple of tours at the AP in my hometown, and then also in Philly, where I now live, which I am obsessed with. Mm-hmm. So did you see other women succeeding as journalists? You see other yes. Black women succeeding as journalists? Yes. And you're like, that is my role model. That is what I want to be. I think I saw that it was possible because Atlanta is a place where there are Black people doing all kinds of things. The mayor of Atlanta has always been a Black person, mm-hmm. all the way down to, you know, my teachers. Like, everybody in yeah. a position of authority is a Black person, and and a lot of them were women. So, like, I was able mm-hmm. to see the possibilities and what I could do and that I could be interested in so many different things, right? When I watched the news every night, I mean, the queen of local news was Monica Kaufman, this Black woman who was beautiful and she was so smart and she just reigned over news. We didn't, Mm -hmm. there was nobody else to watch there. And so it was like, wow, like this person is powerful. That plants a seed, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that you had, you know, you were the one to have the first interview um, with our now vice president. Um, It's Mm -hmm. been a year since President Biden selected her to be the running mate since her nomination. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you look at the issues she's working on, the issues that she's chosen to work on, the ones that she's been assigned to, and, you know, what it does mean that we have the representation of a Black woman as our vice president? It has been a fascinating time to kind of look at gender and and politics and leadership. Yeah. Because you have the second most powerful person in the world being uh, a woman, a woman of color in that first role, which does not always happen. A lot of times when you have the first woman, it is usually a white woman. It's not usually a woman of color that's the first woman to do something. So it's fascinating to be able to do that. And I think, you know, a year in, we are getting beyond the symbolism of that and starting to get a sense of the substance, right? Yep. Voting rights is a big one because you have so many of the activists around voting rights are Black women. And Black women wanted to see a Black woman as vice president, wanted Joe Biden to nominate a Black woman. And so they feel like they have a governing partner who shares their lived experience, somebody that they can talk to, who they can relate to on that level that is important to them. Yeah. So much of what I heard from them last year on the campaign trail was, you know, that they were looking for a return on their investment, their investment being their vote and their mobilization of other people to vote because Black women never vote on their own. They take their community, their sorority, their church, their Their family, whatever institution they are a part of, like network they are part of, like that. They're taking all those people to the polls, right? Yes, yes. And so, you know, for them, though, it's not just about elections. It is also very much about governing. It was not just about getting rid of Donald Trump. It was about issues that they felt were very existential, frankly. Yeah. But for us at the 19th, 
this is about normalizing women's leadership, right? I mean, you know, Jen, we think Mm -hmm. about when is this country going to be ready, you know, to elect women at the highest levels of our government? Because, I mean, even as you have, you know, Kamala Harris as vice president, even as you have Speaker Pelosi, right? Like these people are very powerful women, but they were appointed. They weren't elected to the positions that they have. Kathy Hochul, the first governor of the state of New York. She moves up because Governor Cuomo messed up and now he's gone, right? And so now you have this trailblazer with somebody who has not actually been elected to that role. And so just to see Kamala Harris being vice presidential, whatever that Mm -hmm. means, Mm -hmm. getting on or off of Air Force Two, meeting with world leaders. Yes, presiding over ceremonial events, having this portfolio of voting rights, immigration, getting folks vaccinated. Like when you think about who the vice president is, that is the image that comes to your mind. It is not, you know, the parade of white men that came before her. Yes, (laughs) You know, she, she is the person that is in people's minds increasingly right now. And you're writing a book about Vice President Harris, right? And Black women's role in politics. I am. In your spare time. Exactly. Because I didn't have enough to do. Yeah. Uh, You know, covering Kamala Harris's presidential campaign and then her Veep Stakes journey after she became the nominee Mm -hmm. and seeing Mm -hmm. all that Black women had done to kind of get her and to get our country to the point that we were, it seemed to me that that was really the story to tell more deeply on the other side of the election with Vice President Harris as kind of a case study of Black women's political leadership. Yep. But really, you know, also thinking about the voters, the organizers, the donors, the activists who are Black women who are very much determined to shape this democracy, yep. but not from a behind the scenes kind of way, but very much in the spotlight and putting people on notice that they are on the front lines of this fight for our our democracy and, and not just on their behalf, but, you know, to make this country uh, a more perfect union. Have you seen a, a switch in, in that? Because you, you talk about them emerging as leaders for, you know, I've been in democratic politics for a very long time and Black women have always been the sort of backbone always. of the party. They're, yes. they're always... Always been doing the work, but they have not always gotten the credit. They've always been doing the work. They are the most reliable voter yes. for both parties. No matter who's on the ballot, no matter what's on the ballot. And they've been, you know, always working behind the scenes. And, you know, Stacey Abrams just didn't like emerge. Fully formed in 2020, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. She worked for dozens of years, you know, building on the progress made of, you know, other women who worked for dozens and dozens of years. But a lot of, a lot of it was behind the scenes. But like wh- what happened? Like what are they yes. saying now they want to be leaders? I think you started to see a shift after 2016. Mm-hmm. They did everything that they could to get Hillary Clinton elected. You know, black women were not the reason that Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton is not president of the United States. You know what I right. mean? So, but I think, you know, knowing that they did everything that they could and yet that still wasn't enough. I think that's when you saw black women saying, no, like you do not just get to value us for our output. You will value us for our input. Yeah. Right. And so that's when you see. Alabama special election, I think, was a huge flex for Black women. Yes, this was a special election in 2017 to fill Jeff Sessions' Senate seat. Mm -hmm. And the Republican nominee, Roy Moore, was accused of initiating sexual relationships Mm -hmm. with girls as young as 14 when he was in his 30s. Yeah. Um, But he ended up losing to the Democrat, Doug Jones. Yes, that was Black women standing up and saying, you know what, we are rejecting the idea that it is okay to put this person with this record in office. Yeah. That was a close race, right? It was close. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doug Jones was able to win because Black women galvanized and mobilized and turned out in huge numbers 
to make that happen. And then you have the Virginia governor's race right after that. You know, Ralph Northam uh, being elected governor of Virginia, Black lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax. Black women powered that election, too. The defeat of Ed Gillespie. And and somebody who had been a powerful figure in in Republican politics in Virginia for years. Right. And so uh, flipping Virginia, Black women did that. You know, after that, you had other people in political journalism start to kind of pay attention to Black women. But yes, seeing them so much more publicly, I think, you know, Stacey Abrams was the beginning of that. But then also identifying the other Black women who were doing, have been doing, mm-hmm. and decided that they were going to do something coming out of 2016, that was definitely a shift. I mean, you see it just in your state, Latasha Brown. Latasha Brown was Black Voters Matter. I mean, she was the architect of of that Doug Jones. That wasn't like the party. That was grassroots organizing. Inse Ufot at the New Georgia Project, the Uh predecessor to Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight. It was interesting because I'm just thinking about this. Um, So many of these women are from Georgia. The way you described growing up in Atlanta, you very much saw Black people in power, Black women in power. Like, do you Mm -hmm. think that that has something to do with the fact that there's so many Black women leaders that, you know, in this space that come from your state? I do think so. I mean, the fight for voting rights was waged in the South. Yeah. And in, I mean, this is, this is, you know, Martin, Martin Luther King's King, church. Certainly. But like, you know, you think about, yeah, certainly a lot of the civil rights leaders, but the women that married them were also very active in the movement. And a lot of them are also heroes for the people who continue to do this work. I mean, but you've also got, I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer out of mm-hmm. Mississippi, Ella Baker, so many Black women who uh, were in that tradition who didn't always get the credit that they deserved during the movement. So many Black women were freedom riders, you know, fighting yeah. for voting rights. And so I think we amplify their names more now than we did at the time that they were actually doing the work. But they are absolutely known to uh, and seen as part of the lineage of the women that we see that are doing this work now. And they draw their strength and inspiration from so many of those women whose names we didn't necessarily know then. But I think the reason that we know a lot of the names that we know now is because they laid that foundation. So, And these women all throughout their own lives growing up, they saw, you know, even yes. if we don't know their names, they yes. saw these women. You Absolutely. Know. All right, time for another quick break. Then I want to ask about a recent story the 19th has been covering surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's resignation. That's next on Just Something About Her with Aaron Haynes. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with our guest, Erin Haynes. So the day this podcast is published is also the day the 19th is releasing an interview with the Times Up president, Tina Chen. It's the first interview she's given since the Times Up board chair, Roberta Kaplan, resigned after Mm -hmm. the New York Attorney General's report said that Kaplan had helped Andrew Cuomo as he attempted to discredit a former staffer who was accusing him of sexual harassment. I don't know, Erin, if you were involved in this coverage, but if you can, Mm -hmm. tell us how this interview came to be, because I don't think it was a coincidence that the 19th got this interview, and I think it's important to understand why. Yeah, I mean, we were approached about having this kind of extended conversation with her. Which you need. You need yeah, to have absolutely. an extended conversation, right. you know? Yes, obviously we're yeah. here because of, of the Cuomo scandal, but really, you know, having an opportunity to take the totality of someone's leadership into account. Right. I think that is important. And also, you know, if somebody is saying, you know, look, want to have a conversation and be accountable. Also, you know, talk about, 
the work that we've been doing, the lessons that we are learning and the way forward, you know, I think that our audience certainly deserves to hear that. Yeah. Is interested in that. And I think that people do understand, you know, this is not just about Governor Cuomo. This is a conversation around power and politics and gender. And this is a situation that preceded him. And it will live beyond him if we are not addressing these issues as a society. And if we are not talking about what needs to change as a society, he is a product of this. He is not somebody who invented any of this, but he absolutely benefited from it. And when you say it, what do you you mean? The culture. Yeah. The culture that persists around, like I said, gender and politics and power. So was this nursing home scandal that is under continued investigation. Like that is also about power, right? What this man in office did with that power. And so we have to talk about these issues in that way, even as he resigns from office. Like that does not make the issues go away. Yeah. Part of the Time's Up theory was that they could hold people, powerful people count from the inside and had sort of an insider strategy. And I would say I'm sympathetic to that. I think that is part of the solution because I have seen, I've worked with Tina Chen in the Obama White House and I would watch her and Valerie Jarrett very much hold people to account on mm-hmm. the inside. That doesn't discount pressure from the outside, but it's I think it's needed in addition to pressure from the outside. But do you come away with this with any kind of conclusions about holding men, particularly, you know, in this case, a man in power from the inside versus the outside? Does that ever work or does it just give more power to the powerful? Accountability is not limited to gender. You know, what I've learned in being at the 19th over this past year or so is that, you know, yes, this is a newsroom that centers women, but it's not always going to be a place that celebrates women. It is a place that also holds women accountable, right? right? I think for anybody who is trying to do something big, and Time's Up is trying to address inequality in a huge way, the possibility of, of making a misstep or a mistake is there. Yeah. Or have the wrong theory. Correct. And even, you know, the most well-intentioned folks can fall prey to the very thing that they you know, are trying to prevent from happening. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, mm-hmm. it is on us as journalists. You know, that is a story. Mm-hmm. What's happening there is definitely a 19th story. Now, then, you know, you run into this notion of, well, if all of you women are going to go and create your own newsroom where you're only hiring women and you're talking about women's issues, yeah. you are no longer objective journalists. If anybody listens to podcasts knows, I have like a big bugaboo about sure. the obsession with objectivity when it comes to journalism, because yeah. I think what we really need are credible journalists, mm-hmm. not objective journalists. I don't think that the notion of an objective journalist really exists. No. But like, you know, when people say like, oh, but you're, you're only focusing on women, you're only hiring women. And we, how do you respond to those critics? How do you think about objectivity? Well, look, first of all, objectivity is a myth in journalism, and it is easy to be objective when the default setting is white and male. Like that, mm-hmm. that is not real. We are here to tell the truth. And, and if the truth makes people uncomfortable, I mean, that is a core tenet of journalism is to afflict the comfortable, right? We are here to right mm-hmm. wrongs. We are here mm-hmm. to speak truth to power. Like that is what we are here for. Like we're not right. here to both sides everything, right? I mean, voting rights is not a both sides issue. And that is how objectivity, how like being objective, I think, yes. has sort of played out in the last 20 yes. years. It's like 
if I'm critical of one party, I have to be equally critical yeah. of the other in order to appear objective. And I think that no. that has contributed a lot to the, like no. the cynicism and absolutely as opposed to just being fair and being honest. Like we are here as journalists to leave behind the most honest and accurate record of what happened. And if we are both sizing everything, we are not necessarily doing that. And in fact, we may be leaving a less honest and accurate record behind when we attempt to do that just for the sake of what, of giving people equal time? Like, that's not the point of journalism. I remember when another friend, colleague of mine, Amanda Becker, who had been a uh, reporter for uh, Reuters and had covered the Obama White House, she left Mm -hmm. to join the 19th. And I think she talked to me either after before she made the decision or shortly after she had. And with every woman I spoke to, you all seem to feel liberated. Yes. Why was it so liberating for you all to, you know, what what is the work that you can do now that you couldn't do before? I mean, yes, I absolutely feel liberated being in this newsroom. But again, like I was in my dream job that the issues that I was writing about when I was uh, the national writer on race at the AP. Yep. I'd wanted that job since I was an intern because I felt like it was a very important platform and it certainly was. But, you know, I can tell you that it did not feel at all like a risk to me because at the end of the day, going into 2020, after 2016, I knew there were too many newsrooms that did not get right what happened with that election, right? And I knew going into 2020 that race and gender were not just a story of the 2020 election, like they were the story. Mm -hmm. And if people were not going to say that collectively, not just me as the race writer at the AP, but like the whole politics team needed to be writing stories, playing to those themes. Right. Mm -hmm. So the thing about coming to the 19th, I was writing the stories that I probably was going to write for this election. Right. But I was writing them as the main dish, not the side dish, if that makes sense. Right. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. the whole damn thing is about this. And if people don't understand that, then no. You know, after the election in 2020, I wanted to be able to wake up and say that we did get it right, that we did tell the story that needed to be told about this election and about who and where we were as a country in that moment. So, you know, looking back at our coverage after the election last year, I mean, I felt very gratified that as a team, we focused on those issues and focused on, you know, those voters. Yes. I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, the electability myth and why it was bullshit and why we hopefully will not be, you know, we're trying to bury that going into 2024 because, Electability is about who's electable, right? But like being able to say that in this newsroom, yes, it absolutely feels very liberating. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you think about I'm somebody who is at a point in my career where I didn't really think that I would still be doing things for the first time or doing something that nobody else had done before. Right. Uh, right, And so that is very exciting to try to do. And I knew that we had to try. And it has been very affirming to hear from people who so appreciate the effort that we are making because they know that this is work that needs to be done and they are rooting for us to succeed because they know that our existence is necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's women, that's LGBTQ folks, that's black and brown folks, disabled folks, like people that really were not being normalized in this democracy. Like that is what we are here to do. And that is the value, I think, for so Many people, even in a pandemic, people were still wanting to contribute, wanting to be a part of this. That has been deeply meaningful to me. Amen. Well, I'm glad you did it. Thank you so much for your support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. Please, are you kidding? So good. I've been waiting to be on here. So here (laughs) I am. Sarah, are you there? 
I'm here. She's so great. So great. A big takeaway for me is when we talk about like what needs to change in the premise of coverage. Mm -hmm. In order to be objective, the press will say, you know, bad thing about Republicans. I got to say bad thing about Democrats. But also, rather than get into the details of policy where they're worried about having to say if a policy is good or not or works or not, they will default to the politics around it. I'll be able to default to the horse yeah. race around it. But they have traditionally been loath to go deep into the stories of the people that are affected by the policies, what problems exist in their lives and how policy may fix it. And that's what the 19th just goes head on into. Mm-hmm. So I think that they started the 19th to expand coverage so that it provided a better service for women, people of color, hopefully lead to better policy outcomes if their problems are better, are better covered. But I also think think that they're creating a new model and kind of setting a new standard for how you can do substantive coverage across the board and not rely on sensationalizing policymakers, which Mm -hmm. honestly, you know, and which is a stretch because most of them are pretty boring. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think it's because to the point of this entire conversation, it's because they are interviewing women, marginalized groups about all things. So they really do have a good pulse on what matters to people. And that's why they're able to really whittle down all of these headlines to something that's actually important for people to know and for people to understand. You know, the other big through line here is the fight for voting rights. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I talked about suffrage a lot last year. Yeah. Um, the 100th <laughs> anniversary of the 19th Amendment ratification. And I wrote a book, she proclaims her Declaration of Independence for a Man's World, mm-hmm. that draws lessons from that fight and how they apply it today. And of course, sort of the big lesson from the suffrage fight is that when White women were aligned with people of color in the fight for rights. We made progress. Yeah. And we were divided. The gains that we made came to the expense of another population. And mm-hmm. you can see, like, that has an impact today. I mean, it's, it is still with the huge fight we have for voting rights that is largely meant to impact people of color. And 100 years on, we're still living through the impact of women of color being left out from the 19th Amendment the first time around. Yeah. And we talked a lot about the care infrastructure, care, taking care, giving. Um, In this episode, we've talked about it on past episodes. And I actually think our listeners would really enjoy listening to the Battleground episode that comes out when this episode publishes as well. And this week it was with Ai-jen Poo. Who's fantastic. Who's fantastic. She's the executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And on that episode, they talk a lot about care infrastructure and how it's essential to the economy, but overlooked because it's work done by majority of women and women of color. And so if anyone is interested in taking a deeper dive into that subject, I highly suggest going over to Battleground and listening to that episode. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Erin Haynes for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 